Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome, everybody, to Positively Trek. My name is Barry DeFord, and I am here, as always, with Mr. Dan Gunther. How are you doing, Dan? Hey, Barry. Doing really well. Really excited to talk uh, tonight about Star Trek, which I say every single time. But I think you've come up with a really cool topic here, and I'm very excited. It's one that I've been thinking about a lot, and actually I've been thinking about it since 2009. Can actors play an idea more than just simply a character? And I do have to say that, you know, especially when we think about the TOS bridge crew and our nostalgified culture and everything we have in that respect... Um, the TOS crew do sort of transcend the actors who originally played them in a lot of ways. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of build through the TOS Kirk and every now and again branch out to 09 Kirk and SNW Kirk and just kind of get an idea of this, as you've rightly put it, the enduring personality of James T. Kirk. And I'm going to lead off with my thesis in all of this, that James T. Kirk actually represents a 60s understanding of the future, but is also sort of an enduring piece of 60s pop culture that has found its way back into sci-fi and especially into Star Trek, right? You know, when we think about the captains, there's lots of love for so many of them, right? Um, I obviously am I'm a big fan of Picard and Cisco, Janeway, and I would just rattle them all off now, I guess. But ultimately, I have to say that much like the amazing kitchen that um, Pike has in the Enterprise uh, in Strange New Worlds, the the sort of nostalgic vintage feel of Captain Kirk has never really been fully lost. And I, and I want to give homage to the actors who played Kirk after Shatner, but I think we have to go from the core. And so I think I just want to do a quick little throat clearing here. I don't think you and I specifically, Dan, are massive fans of Bill Shatner, the man himself. Um, he's a complicated person with a very complicated background and a lot of problematic takes on a lot of things. He's been to space and, and you know, 90, what, 92 years old-ish or so. Um, he's definitely done his part and paid his dues as a uh, a piece of the, the pop cultural phenomenon, and he'll never be forgotten for that. And he was also Ranger Bob on Howdy Doody. That's really all I want to say. Um, and and he was also uh, what T.J. Hooker as well, um, which I think was pretty good because that had James, Jimmy Darren in it, who would eventually play Vic Fontaine later on, um, mm-hmm. which is really the only reason to watch that show. Um, but anyways, <laughs> Heather Locklear a little bit maybe. Probably not. Well, yeah, Heather Locklear <laughs> rocks uh, as well. I got I got loads of loads of respect for her too. But mm-hmm. now that I've said what I've needed to say about Shatner, I'm going to give you a second if you need to say anything about Shatner, and then we're going to stop talking about Shatner and talk about Kirk. Is that fair? I, th- I think so, but I, I do agree. I think that William Shatner does need a little bit of discussion in this for sure, because you know, say what you will about Kirk about 
his enduring legacy and all this sort of thing and, and the modern take on him, it does all kind of come from that original, uh, the original writing around that character and the original performance of that character as well. You know, uh, first appearance, of course, not on TV screens, but as far as production goes and where no man has gone before with, you know, the juxtaposition between him and Pike, where he's got, you know, the ripped shirt and the bare knuckle fist fight, fist fight at the end of the episode, just really kind of setting that tone for that style of, of 60s storytelling, I guess. But yeah, I, I think he is, you know, definitely, um, worth mentioning in how he originated that character and a lot of the characteristics that we associate with Kirk, I think, are a bit inseparable from that original performance. And, you know, I I do enjoy watching the original series and seeing that performance. He made a lot of uh, really great choices, I think, in that role. A lot of odd choices as well, but for the most... Sabotage. Part, sabotage. The, pir- sabotage. the pirates of Orion. Uh, things like that. Uh, yeah, but... You know, I, I I still enjoy the heck out of watching him on screen. And I, a little diversion here. I remember a couple of years ago, I had this idea. There was so much negativity going on. We were in the middle of the pandemic. And I, I still kind of regret this, that I never continued on with this. But in the Positively Trek discussion group on Facebook, I decided I'm going to post like a character And we're going to have, you know, say things that you like about this character, that you appreciate about this character. And I was like, okay, I'm going to start this thing. And I had a list of all the characters and I was going to kind of randomly go through it. But I wanted to start with James T. Kirk and specifically James T. Kirk as portrayed by William Shatner. And I, I put that up there and there, you know, a couple positive comments rolled in and then despite my pleas in the opening bit, the negative comments started coming in about William Shatner and how much they don't like him and blah, 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 blah. And I just deleted it and never went forward with any more of those. So a very polarizing figure, uh, for better, or for worse, unfortunately. But yeah, I, I definitely want to give him a shout out here and specifically, you know, offer that olive branch to William Shatner here to say that, you know, for originating that character and making him so memorable for nothing else let's remember him for that honestly that's way better than my little throat clearing and i appreciate that dan very much because because yeah i mean the person and and the character are always going to have you know bits bits that they're that's just going to bleed through and you're going to see little bits of of shatner i think to some degree in the later iterations right uh paul wesley and chris pine both do a little bit of Shatner here and there. And I think they also kind of twist it and change it a little bit too. Maybe another quick diversion before we get going. And hey, by the way, talking about diversions, if you like talking diversions, jump on our Facebook page and talk about your Kirk diversions as well. But I think that where I I appreciated the, the reinvention of Kirk in the 2009 Trek was, I think he kind of had to get beaten up a little bit. 
right? And and obviously that's Chris Pine's Kirk, right? I, I, who doesn't beat him up at some point, right? Ayal, uh, Spock, a bunch of guys in a bar. Uh, I think Uhura gets a shot in, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, he definitely, he definitely kind of almost gets his like penance to some degree of some of the negative aspects of Bill Shatner. Um, and, and Chris Pine sort of takes that place, uh, on his behalf, which is something maybe a little cute, but you're right. No one can overact or chew the scenery like William Shatner can. And with that, I think that gives new actors who get to play him a lot of license to go in a lot of different directions. So with that, I think we can just maybe start with the, maybe what's your most memorable Kirk moment for you, would you say? Well, for me, I think it's uh, the moments where he is kind of that that quintessential 60s hero leading man, right? I mean... A lot of times we remember Kirk for things that uh, I don't think he is. You know, we think of the womanizer Kirk, uh, which, you know, he never really was. Like there was, you you could list off an endless list of ex-girlfriends and past lovers and stuff. I would submit to you that that's more of a trope of 60s style storytelling or even you know, 60s through the 90s style storytelling where it was very episodic and writer writers X, Y, and Z come along that, you know, don't necessarily track that writers A, B, and C came up with, you know, Ruth, Carol, and I don't know, whoever else when they're crafting their stories and, and you have to give some backstory and stuff. So uh, for me, Kirk was that that quintessential leader who was standing tall on the bridge and, you know, standing up for the ideals of that we've come to know of as for the Federation and Starfleet. Uh, for me, for example, the Corbomite maneuver, I think, is a very classic one where, you know, in the face of this horrific looking creature in the eyes of the people on the bridge, uh, he is ever stalwart and always, you know, trying to find that one more chance to kind of continue on to the next thing. And, you know, while certain member of his members of his crew are kind of coming apart, he's the voice of reason who is, you know, calling for calm. Uh, you know, they're doing the, the drills for battle readiness. And he says, you know, we're at 96% efficiency. So run it again. Let's try for a hundred, you know, I, I love that. I, I think that's uh, something that's really continued through a lot of the archetypes that follow him in Star Trek as well. That's really well said. And and also what I really like and find memorable about Captain Kirk is the fact that, yeah, you know, we talk about the green space babes that he beds, and obviously there's there's some, some callbacks to that later on uh, as well in other iterations, but he is a very, like, personal captain in a lot of ways. Uh, I remember when he defends Spock in Balance of Terror, right? Mm-hmm. Leave any bigotry in your quarters. There's no room for it on the bridge. I, I really appreciate that. They, there's no argument. There's no conversation. He's going to stand up for for that kind of moral principle, and I, and I agree with that. And, and I'm very much uh, I very much appreciate that. Taking 2009 Kirk's um, when I think I mentioned this in the last episode we we recorded when he turns back to Ohura and she basically says like I hope you're right about this, and he just looks at her and is like me too there's a there's a vulnerability there um and then i can't and we're going to talk more about this later but city on the edge of forever i mean 
that was always a sad, sad story. And then seeing it kind of get retread in Star Trek Strange New Worlds, he almost kind of gets a bit of a Casino Royale Bond treatment to some degree, where you get a bit of these little aspects of human humanization throughout his his arc as a character in Star Trek fandom and history. And just like James Bond, he also gets the snot kicked out of him for a little while too, to, to kind of humanize him and make him a person again, right? Like when he's fighting the Gorn, yeah, he gets smacked around a bit and his shirt gets ripped and stuff like that. But like he like breaks his nose pretty bad in like the first, I don't know what, half an hour of uh, of 2009 Trek. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I always remember the wadded up tissue up his nose. Like it's just so <laughs> <Yeah>. iconic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Are we done? <laughs> Why are um, you talking, man? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and also I think. What uh, what also you realize about Captain Kirk is he's a really some of his parts kind of captain. And I know I'm not really saying my favorite moment of Kirk, and I've asked you that, and now I'm totally wriggling out of any kind of particular moment. But he is a very some of his parts captain, right? I feel like he could truly command no other ship. I know he did, but at the same time, I don't know, you, you see him, the fact that Spock brings so much good out of him, the fact that his bromance with Spock is such a, an important piece, or how him, uh, Spock, and McCoy sort of are the pathos, logos, and I, I'm forgetting the other one off the top of my head, the guys in Mission Log uh, mentioned that a lot about how the three of them occupy these different you know personas in like greek tragedy or greek plays and theaters and stuff like that you know he very much his personality sort of extends to the rest of his crew in a lot of ways and i've always really appreciated that about him right i think that's where i've kind of come up with the idea for this episode is you know maybe we should start looking a little more deeply not just specifically nostalgically but how these characters permeate uh, science fiction in general, right? I mean, there's caric- caricaturizations of him in modern sitcoms. Uh, my wife and I have mentioned, you know, the Big Bang Theory and how Spock and Kirk kind of get a special, a special treatment there, and they're they're cartoonified like everyone is on that show, but. At the same time, like it really does give you an understanding of how important Captain Kirk truly is to sci-fi in general, right? Kirk, Luke Skywalker, right? Like those are both mountains of of character there, and you know it would be interesting to see Luke played by someone else one day, uh, completely. Um, and also, you know, Mark Hamill can be a polarizing person as well, and and somewhat problematic in in other aspects and areas, just like Bill Shatner, and so. Yeah, I think let's uh, let's move into to where we look at him in his most memorable. And I think my first stop is always Gangster Kirk in Piece of the Action when he goes down to and I'm 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 still getting I didn't get a chance to watch this one over again. I, I had totally planned on watching a piece of the action, but from what I remember, um, it's it's basically a gangster planet, right? And he's mm-hmm. he's he's looking at finally getting them getting them united in, in in one way shape or form but i think some of my my favorite moments you know is watching captain kirk you know really really take on that role of being kind of like that stone cold gangster um i don't know when the last time you saw this 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 episode was or if you managed to watch it uh, or or anything in in any recent period of time but uh is there any, you know, would you say this is a quintessential Kirk episode, watching him kind of pop into 1920s style gangster <laughs> lore, fighting Jojo Krakow? <laughs> I think so. There's there's a lot of really great moments 
really great Kirk moments specifically in that episode, you know? Uh, yeah. The, where he adopts that persona and starts, you know, talking with the, the, the gangster accent. We're going to make some old style phone calls from this locale. So you, uh, locate the man on the other end of the blower and give him a ride to this flop. What? Find the man at the other end of the phone and transport him to these coordinates. Can't do, sweetheart. Can do, Captain. I, I also think of like him um, learning to or figuring out how to drive the car. How to drive? Spock. Yeah, that was so great. <laughs> that was a nice looking caddy too. Oh, oh yeah, man, absolutely. And we also need to remember in that episode that's where he uh, invents the game of Fizbin as well. Where, right, yeah. Fizbin. How do you play Fizbin again? I don't even know. <laughs> I, I I wouldn't put you on the spot for that. But my goodness, that was loads of fun. Oh yeah. But I think I think what really what really gets me about this episode is kind of what you're saying is he blends in immediately. Like he could have just stayed there and probably run the mob if he really really wanted to, right? Everyone else is kind of fish out of water sort of thing, and he just pop right. He's in and ready to just you know take on jojo Craco and and ultimately manage manage everything he's trying to do while you're saying like he starts translating basically for his uh for his friends who don't know what exactly is happening they don't understand anything that's going on and ultimately <laughs> Spock, what are the odds of getting a full shop in fizbin i have never calculated <laughs> those odds. they're astronomical <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it is, is, you know, again, maybe we are getting back into the actor here. And I mean, um, Bill Shatner did a lot of live television when he first started out, right? So he was able to, you know, he's very quick on the draw and stuff. And I think being a sort of bombastic over the top person lends itself very well to being a gangster in that respect. So yeah, I think, I think, you know, when we go back to, to seeing Captain Kirk, it's funny how not on the spaceship is actually sometimes where he's at his best, right? When he's in a pinstripe suit, right? Maybe not if he's in indigenous um, play acting outfits. We won't go into that one uh, very far, but... Uh, or or certain, uh, you know, European factions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well... From the mid-20th century. I mean, and, and there's the wild part is, you know, William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy are both Jewish men mm-hmm. um, playing some of the darkest monsters in all of history. Right. So I don't know. I I feel like they, they kind of could get away with it in the sense that like, you know, not us (laughs) sort of thing, Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, I mean, there have been aspects, but I mean, that was a big thing in the 1960s. I found anyway, right. Like combat um, TV show. um, And just, you know, there, there's always sort of been a a bit of a fascination with the Nazis, especially in Hollywood. And and there's a lot of reasons behind that, that we don't have to necessarily, Mm -hmm. uh, get in get into so there's the bombastic kirk there's the the you know completely over the top kirk we we also get that with the enemy within too right um his quintessential he's smiling but also not he just looks so agonized um but it is it's it's the it's the ego aspect of him that he's actually playing into which is again something about captain kirk i i really find that captain kirk is probably one of the most ego driven captains out of all of the captains in a lot of ways which does him credit right no win scenario kind of guy but at the same time i think also you know his flaws get pulled out of him 
in a literal sense in the enemy within. Are there anything you remember about enemy within that you would say, you know, would make it that quintessential Kirk? Yeah, definitely. I think the, the, the kind of observations by Spock of what amount to, you know, the rest of humanity, but Kirk in particular was really interesting and, and something that really stuck me with me when I watched that as a kid, which is the, the idea of the, the so-called negative parts of our personality might be where we derive a lot of the, the things that, you know, make you able to command or able to, you know, do certain things and be certain things. And, you know, on the face of it, I think a lot of people remember that as very black and white. There's good Kirk and there's evil Kirk, but Mm -hmm. you know, the evil Kirk had aspects that the quote unquote good Kirk needed. And I think Kirk really embodied those characteristics in, in very interesting ways in that episode. I mean, the derangedness, like you said, of, of the evil Kirk versus the, the soft spoken indecision, the, the kind of Mm -hmm. Prince Hamlet esque, uh, dithering of the good Kirk. Right. Um, those are very memorable to me in those up in that, in that episode for sure. Well, and he breaks down too, you know, you went back to the Corbamite maneuver where he's literally lying, right? He's, he's, he's bluffing completely, but that bluff, you know, is bad. It, it could really blow up in his face and it was an impulsive bluff. You could tell he's just, he's picking it up on the fly. Same thing in piece of the action where he's really just acting. And yeah, I mean, Sometimes it's important for people who are hyper ego driven to be able to kind of play in those spaces. If it wasn't for Kirk's crew, the evil aspect of Kirk would be megalomaniacal in a lot of ways. And then, yeah, if it was good Kirk, he probably wouldn't have made it out of space dock because he wouldn't know how to tell his, you know, <laughs> the guy on the con to, you know, release moorings and, and, and move out into into space kind of thing, right? So it is the idea that there is a balance within Kirk that he is able to tread. And sometimes that balance spills over in different places, right? He really never made a decision on his son and that kind of sucked. Or at the same time, you know, some of his brave heroics, you know, get him into a certain amount of trouble or there's a certain amount of recklessness. But, you know, as it usually goes is that recklessness will eventually turn itself around, right? I think a really good, uh, demonstration of that as well uh not necessarily turning about turning out badly but like that that kind of bravado and that it's an often made fun of speech but i really really if you analyze it i do love his speech in the episode return to return to tomorrow where he talks Mm. about it's the famous risk is our business speech right yeah risk risk is our business That's what the starship is all about. That's why we're aboard her. McCoy is like, why are we doing this? Like, why are we going to take this risk? And the camera just starts pushing in on Kirk. And he talks about how the early space voyagers, you know, if they hadn't have struck out the way they did, you know, man would never have gotten to where, where they are. And that leads into the whole risk is our business thing. And he turns the opinions of his whole crew around <laughs> and like yeah. it's just it's such a perfect kirk moment it's true i'm 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 not as good um with finding the quotes i'm just finding it mm. right now when in uh, the doomsday machine you're better you're better with us right right you're better Trying alive with us convince decker than without yeah. us yeah to convince decker not to just 
completely throw his life away. And again, there's there's the Kirk who maybe is a little more Hamlet-esque in that sense, where I think, you know, maybe there could have been more he could have done um, rashly to get the Commodore back onto the ship. But I think in that respect, he he did his best to, to apply to the man's reason. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, all it really shows is that Kirk is the better captain. He's the better leader. He's got the stronger vision than than the Commodore does, than Decker than Decker could ever have, mm-hmm. right? And I appreciate that that piece of him because he he kind of let puts the cards down on the table of what he's truly about and that is you know the idea that no all of us together make make us as a whole and you know if you if you remove yourself from that we all hurt from that right a womanizing space babe getting dude wouldn't necessarily be completely into that sort of thing and so you do see that tender piece of it Mm -hmm. the other part that i love about about the doomsday machine is when he realizes there's a problem and he's like gentlemen i suggest you beam me aboard (laughs) like he's (laughs) like i'm gonna die (laughs) yeah kirk gets some really interesting humorous moments too for sure yeah uh also i i want to talk a bit about um that idea going back to the enemy within there's an interesting bit in that where spock is basically hiding Kirk away saying you can't you can't appear to be like this in front of your crew you can't lose command if if you do this your crew will never follow you and that's that's an interesting theme we see play out kind of early on in Kirk's command is that like he doesn't show weakness unless it's behind closed doors right. and then i kind of juxtapose that to a moment almost two decades later where he's evolved with his relationship to his crew and his close crew members have become his close friends Mm -hmm. and uh star trek 3 the search for spock when they're on the bridge of the enterprise and david marcus is killed by the klingons that that whole moment brilliantly directed by leonard nimoy and brilliantly i think acted by william shatner the whole where he stumbles and misses the chair and lands on the floor you klingon bastards you've killed my son and the reaction shots of his crew, you know, he hasn't lost command there. He's not weak. He's human. And it, it's such a, a vulnerable moment for Kirk, which we didn't get a ton of. But when we got it, it really meant something. It's true. And 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 again, you know, really quickly, you know, we want to bring in Paul Wesley and Chris Pine. Vulnerability is treated very well by both of those actors around Captain Kirk as well. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point that it might or may or may not have brought me to tears. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but can, can, yeah, kind of continuing with this with this role here, I, I want to kind of end with sort of these these sort of highlights of Kirk's character too. One of my favorites because it 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 is maybe a kind of a leadership that I I try to do in my own place of work and, and life and stuff like that, and that is the Kirk of. The trouble with tribbles. He is perennially annoyed in that, but there's an annoyance of, I don't know, he's not really that bothered by it. Like when he's covered in tribbles in the end, you can tell he's like, oh man. You know, it's like when I have to move a mattress upstairs. Like I know I'm doing it for the family and it's all good, but like I can still gripe about it a little bit. I really enjoyed it because, you know, he's in his little green wrap. I think for the first time, was that the first episode that we got Kirk's little green wrap was Trouble with Tribbles or was that earlier? Do you know? I think it was earlier. I think the first time we see it just, okay, this is, here's my nerd hat. 
right out. I think, I, I don't know air date if this is how it lands, but I think the first uh, produced episode with him in it is actually the Doomsday Machine because it's missing a little bit of black trim. It just has gold. And then after that, it's got a little bit of black trim. So I think that was the earliest version of that. There was actually a different green wrap in season one. Yeah that was used to differentiate the evil and good Kirks. But yeah, for that particular one, uh, I think Doomsday Machine was the first time production-wise he wore it anyway. Dan, we love you. And <laughs> and and like, I I could just literally reach to my keyboard and type all that out, but it's, it's more fun this way, I think, to, to talk about Star Trek and not necessarily, you know, get every single minute detail completely correct, right? This isn't the Big Bang Theory. We don't have to do that. Right. I, I kind of do wish I had other stuff in my brain sometimes, but uh, there you have it. That little piece of trivia is taking up some space that, you know, some quantum theory could or something. <laughs> Calculating GST, whatever, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe maybe just, just looking at... Um, how everybody else seems to be kind of uppity and bouncy and, and very emotional uh, in the trouble with Tribbles episode. He seems to be the only one like somewhat unfazed by all of, all of what's happening, right? Klingons are losing their minds and the Tribbles hate the Klingons and everyone thinks they're super cute. Uhura's like, well, can't we keep them? And then they start breeding everywhere and they're filling up the ship and they're showing up in people's food. And, you know, by the end of it, uh, was it Dax and Cisco managed to knock a whole bunch of tri- triples onto uh, Captain Kirk in the end? Yeah, I'll be um, in sick bay with a headache. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's it too. Is you know, there's a certain level of of a deep comfort that I find with that. Is you know, I think you know, Kirk was really looking forward to a pretty uneventful situation, and the event he got was you know overall pretty benign you know i mean i guess the triples you know were were breeding pretty fast and 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 randomly in that sense but ultimately you know there's not the stakes aren't very high right in that episode for for obvious reasons it's one of those kind of rest episodes where things can just be kind of funny and happy and whatnot but you know you look at you look at the range that captain kirk has for himself, I think that's where you really do see a character who can kind of stand the test of time in a lot of ways, because he's not, he isn't a one or two dimensional character. He's very much a three dimensional. And because he's moved through time and through different actors, I would argue he's a four dimensional character. Like Ooh, that one? Yeah, I like that. Ooh, that's fancy, excellent. Fancy. Yeah, the trouble with Tribbles Kirk, I think, is a really fun one to analyze a little bit too, because, uh, we also see him interacting with Federation officials in that one who mm. think of themselves as very officious and important. And Kirk is kind of, you know, not having it. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. <laughs> one of my favorite lines in that entire episode is Starfleet command. I have never this. questioned the orders or the intelligence of any representative of the Federation until now. <laughs> <laughs> or uh what's the other one in my opinion you have taken this entire very important project far too lightly on the contrary sir i think of this project as very important it is you i take lightly <laughs> <laughs> yeah right just these little cuts and and turns of phrase that uh 
Yeah, that that, that are, are are quintessentially Kirk. Mm-hmm. Now, before we we move on, I, I want to kind of move our our topic over a little bit because you know Kirk is the sum of his parts, but we we really can't talk about Kirk without talking about Spock. And eventually, if we do an episode on Spock, there's going to come a point where we're going to have to come to the terms of we can't talk about Spock without talking about Kirk. Mm-hmm. And where I want to start is my first sort of Kirk Spock connection was at the end of a mock time when, you know, after they've fought and all this sort of stuff, Spock sees Kirk and realizes he's not dead. Right. And Jim, you know, he's just so happy to see him. Mm -hmm. And suddenly he recomposes himself to get a Vulcan to laugh or get a Vulcan to, you know, behave emotionally really gives you an understanding about how they truly feel about you. As much as I think Kirk, you know, begged his fair share of space babes, as we would uh, grossly say in some ways, um, the people who truly loved him never shared a bed with him. And Spock truly is the the the, the bromance of all bromances, I think, in, in so many ways, right? Um, from Amok time to TMP, right? When at the very end, Spock has sacrificed himself, right? And like two lovers meeting in prison, all they can do is put, press their hands up against the glass at each other, um, not being able to actually touch. But, you know, the touching scene that they create shows a love that will last from beyond uh, anything. And I mean, I think in 2009, it's really treated well when finally Zachary Quinto's Spock meets Leonard Nimoy's Spock, and he's like, why didn't you just tell me? And he's like, because you guys needed to make friends. Mm-hmm. This doesn't work if you guys don't make friends, because you will always be at odds at each other unless you're friends. Mm-hmm. Unless, you, unless you have that connection to each other that goes so incredibly deep, right? Kirk defends Spock on a number of occasions, and Spock, I think learns more about himself and what it means to be human than anything. You know, I think Spock does a little bit of Captain Kirky style, maybe slightly rash command choices in Galileo seven. <clears throat> he gets a couple of guys killed like that, that these sorts of things are typically, typically aspects that, that only the leader gets to feel. But I think to some degree, Spock gets an understanding of how lonely it is at the top. Right. Yeah. There's, there's some really great moments that, uh, Oddly enough, sometimes when they're not together is where you really mm-hmm. see them come through. I'm thinking in particular of uh, a scene in the episode Bread and Circuses where mm. uh, McCoy and Spock are being kept in a jail cell and they're worried about Kirk who has been taken off uh, by himself with the the people that have them imprisoned. And mm-hmm. um, Spock is trying to figure out a way out of the cell and testing the strength of the bars. And McCoy's like, you've done that a hundred times. You're not learning anything and kind of needles Spock a bit about saying, you know, oh, that's why you act the way you are. You're afraid that, you know, one little bit of human emotion is going to slip through and that, that facade will be destroyed. And you see Spock's face from the front and McCoy can't see him. And he has this pained look on his face and he composes himself and, turns to Bones and says, really, Dr. McCoy? And McCoy responds, I know, I'm worried about Jim too. 
Like, it's just such a great moment for the two of them. Now, Kirk's off, uh, you know, being treated to a, a slave woman, apparently, which, uh, 60s television rears its ugly head there again but uh yeah. yeah he's not suffering he's 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 fine he's being fed grapes at the at that moment i believe but <laughs> <laughs> yeah in this respect that's why star trek search for spock isn't about spock it's about kirk mm-hmm. right it's about kirk coming to terms with death it's about spock, uh, about kirk coming to terms with not having some of the things he's typically used to like the enterprise or spock himself you know and and having to kind of reinvent that relationship with spock as you know his katra is moved from from mccoy to to the 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 growing up version of spock that has to happen i mean all of that happens around a deep development that captain kirk's son is in mortal danger and that captain kirk is realizing um how much loss affects him in Mm -hmm. in in those ways and how you know you break off a piece of of kirk um through the people he loves and he really doesn't doesn't fare very well um you know you you saying that he has that vulnerability when his son dies you know i think you're right he does maintain his command even though he's in the most vulnerable position but that's because of the 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 crew that he has with him yeah the the part that that echoes for me with that film especially was the very end right where spock says my father tells me that you came back for me why would you do this and kirk looks at him and says because the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many and spock just doesn't know what to do with that information i need you spock Mm -hmm. (laughs) i need you exactly yeah thinking about grief and loss and and everything like that you know i mean who doesn't want a genesis device right (laughs) (laughs) One other piece, though, that I've always really loved, and it was brought better, I think, ultimately by Zachary Quinto, was the aloofness of Kirk and how he and Spock sort of treated one another, even after they had made good friends. Um, But my favorite part is when he slaps Zachary Quinto really hard on the arm, and this is shortly after Zachary Quinto's like (laughs) tried to choke him out to death. I think that that that's that's another piece of those two and their character is as much as they could be deep and dear friends i think in the wrong circumstances they could wind up being mortal enemies uh in a lot of ways because they do sort of as represent aspects that are so wildly different from each other and this is where i want to maybe dip a little bit into the 1960s that what was 60s culture but sort of a cultural revolution away from a much more sort of frumpy everything is a white picket fence a place for everything and everything in its place style spock like 1950s you know no worries about emotions and that sort of stuff to the more let loose giver you know i don't think captain kirk would necessarily surf but i could see him playing the surf guitar um in in certain in certain aspects where his cavalier nature is very much what the 1960s was bringing to popular culture as it was and i think giving the cavalier devil may care you know flyboy that spock is or that sorry that kirk is and juxtaposing that with spock does a really interesting thing for, I think, the viewership. Neither of us were alive in that time, but it does a lot, I think, 
as far as I understand, for the viewership who would have been watching the show in its original time. This brings me back to my grandpa, who was a Navy man, fought in the Second World War. Balance of Terror was his favorite episode. Um, He actually, when it came on, he called me from whatever I was doing. I don't actually remember, but I remember him shouting for me and saying, you need to come and watch this episode. Commercials are on. Come sit down and watch it with me because this is the closest you're going to ever get to what actual maritime combat is like. It's boring, it's quiet, and it's terrifying. And I and I always really appreciated that aspect. But my grandpa very much represented that more place for everything. He's more of a Spock than a Kirk. But I I know he loved Kirk's performance in that episode more than any other character. And I think, you know, maybe he had a captain like that or whatever. I'm not terribly certain. But my grandpa being a, you know, dad in the 1960s who did watch a lot of Star Trek in that time when it was on. He had the only color TV in the neighborhood, my grandpa did, and that's one of the reasons why he liked watching Star Trek. Little fun fact there. Um, People would come from all over the neighborhood to watch Star Trek and the Ed Sullivan Show. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Thank you so much for downloading this episode of Positively Trek. We truly do appreciate each and every one of our listeners, and I'd like to especially thank our Patreon supporters. Thank you to our Constitution Class supporters, Jim Stoffel, Joyce Marin, and Paul D. Kinnear. If you'd like to become a supporter of Positively Trek and join our crew, please go to patreon.com slash positivelytrek. You can get early access to episodes, exclusive content, shoutouts, associate producer credits, ad-free episodes and more again that's patreon.com slash positively trek thank you all and live long and prosper something you said there is really interesting too about kirk as a pop culture icon you know in the 60s so 1966 to 69 really interesting time interesting carrying a lot of different meanings uh, there because it always kind of struck me that that kirk really as as the lead of this television show that was on during that time had to strike a really careful balance and i think they did a really good job of that where yeah in a lot of ways he does represent some of those ideals of maybe the younger people in the 60s right a little bit more carefree a little bit more you know oh there's there's some free love happening they couldn't really say that that was happening but kirk was sitting on the edge of the bed putting on his boot while you know, a woman brushed her hair in the corner. Like we got it. We got what was going on. Um, but at the same time, in a lot of ways, he was also a little bit of that old guard, right? Like the, Mm -hmm. the kind of slicked back haired leading man who is, you know, by the book business and maybe in some ways represented a little bit of the, uh, the conservative culture of the time and, and conserve by conservative, I don't mean politically necessarily. I mean more of, you know, the kind of like socially a little bit conservative stuff with that, you know, officer and a gentleman type thing, mm-hmm. right? Like the, the perfect gentleman 
uh, except when he wasn't. So it, it, it's really <laughs> interesting because he, he is, he wears different hats at different times. And I think both sides in that, you know, cultural debate, I guess, could probably point to him at various times and say why he does or does not represent their ideal in that situation. So I, I feel like they were walking a really interesting fine line and it's kind of fun to put yourself back there and say like, what is he representing in this scene kind of thing? Like I said, he's a four dimensional character, mm -hmm. right? Um, because yeah, he's also occupying a liminal period in Western popular culture, right? 66 to 69. You're absolutely right. <laughs> like think about like Beatles albums in the 60 in 66 and the Beatles album in 69, and you're going to get a completely different band, right? Mm -hmm. um, you get that a lot with a lot of things, right? Um, Woodstock 69, right? Is, is an interesting and, and, you know, complicated piece of history, right? You've got the, the, the intensification of the war in Vietnam, right? Where, yeah, you've got these officers and gentlemen who go off in the middle of the Vietnamese rainforest and, and, and stuff like that, where, you know, Kirk does do some things that would be considered, you know, not by the book and, you know, your average officer and a gentleman would never get around to that. And to some degree, I think that's why they chose to pull Jeffrey Hunter, right? It was going to be too smart of a show and it was going to be too, maybe, maybe there wouldn't be enough room for a Spock in, in the Jeffrey Hunter version. And obviously Spock was characterized differently during the Jeffrey Hunter episode of, uh, of Star Trek. So seeing him shift over, or seeing the, the, the studio shift over to someone like Captain Kirk instead, I think, yeah, it does. It, 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 he, he represents a lot, of, a lot of converging aspects, sociological aspects of the 1960s. Another thing that I, you know, we've kind of already treaded over a little bit is just how much of a tactician Kirk truly is. And you know, I've already kind of mentioned that idea of, of balance of terror and, and how much of a strong tactician he was, right? Um, even the Romulans at the end are, are very much open with the idea that they have been soundly beaten he's a wizard that one yeah exactly and 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 the fact that he was able to use unconventional means uh while at the same time you know keeping his crew keeping the lid on his crew while they were facing you know certain death and obviously that it has its um it has its parallels to the um to the wrath of khan and and how he he you know the the error of not having his shields up thinking he was approaching a a safe ship and then and then having to deal with that and using stealth and using the ability to hide um and also playing on the ego of 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 Khan himself right um much like he did earlier with um with the Romulan commander whose name suddenly escapes me never had one <laughs> No, he didn't, did he? Nope. Okay, good. I'm not. I'm not just being a fool. Then good, but that's <laughs> Spock's dad later, um, and the Klingon in the motion picture uh, who gets vaporized by V'ger. Mm -hmm. What's his name again? Uh, Mark Leonard. Mark Leonard. How could I forget? Goodness, <laughs> love Mark Leonard. Lots of love to Mark Leonard. Great, Absolutely. Uh, great. Great actor. Yeah. So yeah, I, you've you've got some ideas on Kirk the tactician, and mm -hmm. you're going into maybe. Uh, some areas I'm not very well versed in because I've only seen this movie maybe twice and it was in the 90s that I saw it. So it's been a while. Yeah, Kirk, always well known as a brilliant tactician, right? With with some blunders, like you mentioned in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. I would also say like Star Trek Three, right? Like 
sussing out that it was a cloaked Klingon bird of prey and surprising them with a couple torpedoes <laughs> right off the bat. Precautionary, Mr. Sulu raised shields, you know, <laughs> didn't <laughs> yeah, even have the I shields. I learned my lesson. <laughs> um, but yeah, Star Trek V, The Final Frontier is another one where, you know, maybe we don't see a lot of Kirk's tactics tactics and stuff but it's another one where we learn that he's known for this right uh Mm -hmm. and this is a little bit of a backhanded compliment to that movie because uh i i loved this movie as a kid as i grew up got older i saw its flaws and i think the last time i watched it which was a couple years ago the one thing i notice is when kirk's not on screen (laughs) the characters on screen are talking about how good he is (laughs) where is he where's kirk (laughs) yeah well when he's not on screen we've got you know the klingon saying like oh if i could best kirk in battle i would be the greatest warrior in the galaxy that's an actual quote that's not that's what (laughs) that's what this klingon says but it just goes to show that um, he is known galaxy wide, apparently as a brilliant tactician, especially when the movie is co-written by William Shatner. Well, there you go. <laughs> uh, he's, you know, and, and in, in most cases, I think in like, you know, the feudal era of human history or even in, in major war, you know, that would almost make him mark for death, mm-hmm. right? In the sense that the red that Baron, are, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, you're that good. I'm I'm going to come and and you know, he's he's sort of like back to the gangster world, right? Had he have stayed there, um, you know, his his bravado and his tactical nature would make him have to test his food before he bit, d- dug into anything. I think in a lot of ways. But no, I I mean as much as, you know, again, William Shatner's going to congratulate himself on what is a good character, and I guess, you know, he has a whole movie where he does that, you know, balance of terror corbomite maneuver you know even even having to cobble his crew back together in um in star trek beyond right after literally having the ship's head cut right off right and there he is standing on the bridge last man standing on the bridge everyone's scattered into the wind right he's able to to bring his crew back together again and win the day because um you know he's able to rely on the the the, the desire for revenge that Idris Elba's character whose name suddenly escapes me as well you know gets himself into right he he's able to and what makes a good tactician basically what i'm trying to say is kirk always seems to know his enemy uh, and i think maybe to some degree it's because he knows himself yeah and i mean that's uh both times he faces off against Khan are are mm. great examples of that too when you know Khan has everybody trapped in the briefing room and kirk has to take back the ship from him mm-hmm. and then yeah star trek to the wrath of khan with you know his uh his ever-present sidekick spock feeding him information and him using that right mm-hmm. patterns indicate two-dimensional thinking and he's like aha i've got him <laughs> you know I, I love stuff like that where you see it, it's kind of in in later years come to be known as the dr house moment right where the yeah where the camera's on his face and he goes ah I've got it. <laughs> yeah. The Eureka moment. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's finish off with some pain because I also think that, that, that James T. Kirk does actually get cut down a few times, both physically and emotionally. And maybe this is where we can talk a little bit about Paul Wesley's iteration, because I really think he has, has delved into the cut down Kirk, the, the, the Kirk who's, who's, 
great ego and bravado can't help him whatsoever, right? But I want to start in season one with City on the Edge of Forever. Mm -hmm. When was the first time you saw this? Oh, I couldn't even tell you now. It, I was yeah. very young. I'm late to watching this one, honestly. I do think that probably the first time I saw City on the Edge of Forever, I was probably in university where, yeah, I mean, like it, it is a little bit outside of that. Uh, and I remember watching it first because like, I, I don't really like McCoy's performance in any of this. He's he's just completely outside of himself and just, I don't know, I don't really like how his character kind of comes in like this, you know, mewing sort of trickster, goofy completely lost everything any kind of sense of of humanity right he's just a wackadoo kind of dude um which is fine um deforest kelly did everything with with what he had new york city the great depression it's it's a it's a it's a hard time for everybody and he comes across one of the most sweetest well put together characters played by Joan Collins, Edith Keeler. And I remember because, you know, I'm a I'm a I'm a grown man at this point watching this episode. And I remember just thinking like, wow, Edith Keeler is is a person I would love in a lot of ways. Like I, I don't really see how many people could see her as unlovable. But then realizing that in order to prevent the victory of the nazis which always comes back to it and that's fine uh edith keeler needs to get hit by a car and being able to not merely be able to deal with that kirk's the one who stops mccoy right mm -hmm. am i correct in that is that how i'm remembering yep, it absolutely deliberately stop me jim i could have saved her do you know what you just did He knows, Doctor. He knows. How how do you get how do you come back from that? Like even thinking about it there, and I mean sixties TV show doesn't have sixties TV shows for us folks in, in these days maybe doesn't have the same weight. But I remember feeling specifically choked up by the pain in Kirk's face, right? Yeah, he knows. Yeah, I'm I'm remembering that now. And you know, let's get the hell out of here. Yeah. <laughs> is, well, is I think that right there tells you how affecting that episode is because the censor who watched that episode, there's not one other instance of hell in the original series than that right. episode. The censor watched that episode and said, yeah, that's fine. That's justified. Holy crap. What he just went through. Yeah. Give him that hell. He's allowed to say that. He earned it, you know, he, and there he's needs of the manying it, right? He, he could have lived a very, he could, he could have seen such a different life for himself. And, and yeah, I mean, obviously there's, there's another iteration. I have the comic book that has the adaptation of Harlan Ellison's original script. Mm -hmm. um, it carries a fair bit of that same uh, feeling. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong, but um, I think it takes a moving and acting Kirk to really drive home that that emotion, the 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 heartbreak that Kirk has to endure to know that he did the right thing. You know, there's some degree there's a messianic feel to Edith Keeler, you know. Can we achieve good things by letting the innocent die? Is is kind of the the philosophical question of that. And there's a, you know, there's a there's a maybe a religious piece to this, but at the same time, despite all of that, 
Kirk realizes that he has to put his own interests, his own potential for, for love aside and, and do the good thing for the sake of the good thing. And this, and this, this good human being, Edith, Edith Keeler, she is, she is a bit of a, uh, you know, what's, what, what would, would I use like a, uh, like a Hollywood trope to some degree, maybe? Where does she work, right? She's, she is this just like down to earth, progressively good person who's just who's fated to die you know much like uh much like the, the jesus uh, mythos in in the christian in the christian religion right the the sweet good gentle meek and mild must be killed for the good of all and i mean that's where i think it, it picks up very well on western society in a lot of cases i don't necessarily know if if this story would have the same resonating effect in other other cultures necessarily not saying that's a value judgment against other cultures i think there's other ways of of seeing how one could manage the the story of edith keeler in a lot of ways right but again as a piece of 1960s in in the case of 1960s popular culture you're right this this breaks a lot of ground and i can't imagine people you know turning off that episode of star trek and being like yeah let's go play some frisbee you know like i like i would want to go and you know maybe drink some tea and 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 sit quietly and 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 maybe read a poem or something or just do something else with my day to kind of process what exactly happened right yeah i feel like uh for all we talk about with kirk and his conquests and his scads of exes and all this stuff I think Edith Keeler is one of the great loves of Kirk's life. And like, it is a romance that's built over the course of one single episode, but there's a couple indications in that episode. They, they spent a good amount of time back there waiting for McCoy and, Mm -hmm. you know, not on the order of, you know, months and months necessarily, but you know, it was more than a couple days for sure. Like it was a good few weeks uh, that this mm. romance builds and he finds himself falling in love with Edith Keeler. And it's, it's a testament to the performances of Kirk and Edith Keeler and Spock in that episode that when Spock walks in and tells, or when Kirk walks in and tells Spock, I think I'm falling in love with Edith Keeler. You buy it 100%. 100%. A, because of how Kirk is being portrayed, but also because of, like you said, how good a person and how wonderful a person Edith Keeler is and just how perceptive she is. And I mean, I know that's just the script and how it's presented and stuff, but like, I love when she looks at Kirk and Spock. You know as well as I do how out of place you two are around here. Interesting. Where would you estimate we belong, Miss Keeler? You? At his side. As if you've always been there and always will. And you, you belong in another place. I don't know where or how. I'll figure it out eventually. And you just like, you know she will. Like she would absolutely yeah. figure that out. And uh, and then also just the way she relates with McCoy too. Like she's just such a good mm. person. I absolutely buy that. Yeah, for sure. She's very saintly mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways. And, and I think I think that's that, that's an insightful way of 
seeing ultimately what or who James T. Kirk truly is, right? He might be a bit of a womanizer and all of that sort of stuff. But I think at the same time, he's he is looking for a heart of gold and he found one Mm -hmm. and he'll find another one in strange new worlds to the same uh, tragic end, (laughs) but not quite the same. I think on its ear a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. He gives his own life. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which again, you know, flips itself as well with the bromance between Kirk and Spock in, uh, uh, into darkness, right? The, we've, we've done this sort of, uh, shifting, um, that has taken place, on a, on a number of occasions with uh with with good old uh Captain Kirk. So I don't want to I don't want to continue to kind of pull at threads here and I don't know if we need to do a spoiler alert if we're going to talk about Strange New Worlds next. What do you think? Oh, well, I I think you just did. Okay, a yeah, spoiler alert. Everybody, <laughs> spoiler alert. As I've mentioned, Kirk is looking for that heart of gold, right? He is someone who is attracted to and you know on the face of it and also sort of subconsciously and also just to make the the story look good he he is attracted to a specific kind of of lady and i would say ultimately kirk falls for the lost cause the idea that he loves edith keeler and knows that she has to die right it's not necessarily that laan is a lost cause to kirk but what is season two of strange new worlds but laon kind of coming around to the fact that she is not a lost cause yeah and like somebody who might be worthy of someone loving her like she hopes kirk might after this experience with this alternate kirk yeah well and then and then yeah this this alternate kirk comes along and now she has to kind of reconfigure her her relationship with someone who yeah she loved dearly and deeply in a lot of ways and it's almost like you know what if what if captain kirk had to find himself with another iteration of Edith Keeler later on or something, right? How would he react to it? Well, I, I almost wonder if he might lose interest a little bit. I, and, and, and maybe I'm going maybe too far into my thoughts on how Captain Kirk acts and who he is and stuff like that. To some degree, I think, you know, there's a pretty high likelihood, don't get me wrong, I could be wrong, but Kirk doesn't end up with Laon, does he? <laughs> No, as we know in the original <laughs> series. Yeah. So there's again something something to the fact that he must always be alone. He must he you know kind of like Batman, right? He he <clears throat> he can never have that love forever. He can never keep that love forever. And much like other quintessential aspects of the 1960s, now Batman got that be alone forever thing from the 1980s. It wasn't in the 1960s as much. Mm-hmm. James Bond is that way too. Right. James Bond is again, same name, um, first name, at least this um, this continuity between these quintessential man's man 60s characters. Notice how they don't ever settle with a good lady. They are a good partner, or a good person. He has to lose her to stay Kirk. And I, I and and maybe I'm I'm kind of bouncing into stuff and 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 everyone listening, if you think I'm wildly off base, please 
let us know. Um, and this is kind of where I wanted to end it because I think that this has something to do with the larger zeitgeist, right? The, the spirit of the time that comes out of the 1960s. And it's something that's stuck with us, right? The idea of the, the hero must be alone, you know, yeah. um, uh, and, and that sort of stuff. I, I think that very much echoes through a lot of, of what we see of Kirk and, and yeah, part of it is that, that kind of trope of the lone wolf hero, the, the, all like you can, you can trace it through, right? Like the suffering that he goes through the, the things that he loses along the way, right from, you know, individual episodes like the city on the edge of forever with Edith Keeler. Uh, you can go to Star Trek, uh, three, the search for Spock, losing his son, sacrificing everything to get Spock back. Uh, Star Trek five weird that I'm bringing it up again, but he has that line. I've always known I'll die alone. Right. That's such a, a hero right? trope thing. And then all the way through to his final canonical bit in generations, right. Where he says, you know, maybe the galaxy owes me one. Maybe I can retire in the Nexus and live forever. But no, the 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 galaxy calls him back one more time to fight on the side of good. And he gives his life to save the people of Viridian 3, I guess. Kind of weird, <laughs> but okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah it, it, it's very much a Kirk thing, right? Like that, that sacrifice of self whether that's his happiness with a partner or his very life or his his chance at peace you know yeah uh, he has to give that up and and i mean it's an overdone trope like i think of the first live action spider-man with um toby mcguire and when he's he's saying you know he basically rebukes Mary Jane's love and the reason behind it, he says in his head as he sort of smiles to himself, I'm Spider-Man, you know, like I can't have a girlfriend. That's not the way it is, you know? And I think that's important to understand that that trope of Captain Kirk is actually somewhat toxic mm -hmm. um, and, and, and not necessarily a quality that we want to venerate ourselves, but I think it's a quality that for whatever reason at least in Western pop culture, it's admirable. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Like it's kind of incelish, isn't it? Like a little bit, <laughs> like really like, yeah, I, I must stand alone. I, you know, yeah. just a little bit anyway, a little bit. Yeah. Kirk isn't some perfect character who really anyone should, should aspire to be in a lot of ways either. He's an interesting character. Mm -hmm. uh, we mentioned, we compared his, his softer side to Hamlet. Hamlet's interesting. Um, I'd punch him in the face if I ever saw him. Oh, of course. Um, <laughs> right? He treated Ophelia terribly. Come on. Yeah. Um, he, he could have, he could have really played that differently, but anyway, I, I digress. So, yeah, the the idea that that the the hero must always be alone because he's a man's man and all this sort of stuff is to me very very problematic ultimately. And maybe this is where we end it off on is the idea that James T. Kirk is an interesting and very compelling and sometimes silly and heroic, problematic character who 
ends up being a asymmetrical shape in a lot of ways, who is getting reinvented through Paul Wesley, through Chris Pine, uh, other characters and writers and people who have carried him. And he is larger than life, and he's much larger than any of the actors who've ever played him. And there's a little bit of Kirk in all of us, um, to some degree, and, and for better or for worse, we all have that. But I think exploring these characters ultimately is what Star Trek is meant to do, right? They're not in space, everybody. They're in your head. They're in the human condition itself. And as much as every alien species represents a larger aspect of that human condition, or at least through the perception of you know, kind of popular culture in the West. So each character, I think, manages to encompass a certain aspect of humanity. And Kirk's aspect of humanity takes us back to, you know, I think very much he's a Ulysses in a lot of cases, right? Where he he is the sum of his crew in in so many cases, right? Taking it back to to sort of deeper lore. Um, He's also a reaction to a lot of the, the people who would have experienced times where they would have had to get into uniform and go and do some stuff right on a on a on a ship or on a plane or you know in a foxhole or whatever else right mm-hmm. as you've mentioned he does embody this you know gentleman uh gentleman warrior uh in some ways and then also yeah he he's pulling people out of that as a character into that more uh free love cavalier maybe somewhat laissez-faire style of heroic loner in in some ways as well so yeah i he's a he's a man of many many distinctive characteristics that are as i said asymmetrical and sometimes problematic but i think about james t kirk and the loneliness of leadership and i think if we continue a series like this we're really going to see the loneliness of leadership when we get to cisco Mm -hmm. but um ultimately he sets the captains off very, very well and, and gives all of them, you know, a second star to the right and straight on till morning that they can follow and then invent themselves as they head on their trajectory as characters in Star Trek and as captains specifically. So that's, uh, that's all I specifically have to say about, uh, James D. Kirk. Is there any last thoughts on your end, Dan? Yeah, I think, uh, this has been a great discussion of, you know, one of the like for better or worse great characters of 20th century and now 21st century pop culture like you said kind of setting that template for what a starfleet captain is like that's he's the only example we had for quite a while or the the only consistent example we had for quite a while you can you can bring in some you know captains who went crazy and did I, those are kind yeah, of the only other captains we saw right <laughs> were were the ones that were juxtaposed to him and and shown you know how off their rocker there was because they were because we had to see how awesome james t kirk is and uh you know part of me thinks of that meme where you you remember they did a bunch of memes back in the day that looked like those inspirational posters and yeah. it was captain kirk i'm sorry i can't hear you over the sound of how awesome i am um <laughs> which you know there's an aspect of that to his character and i mm-hmm. think that's okay in a lot of ways because he did embody those great ideals he didn't always live up to them, 
but in the viewer's mind, he was the embodiment of that paragon of Starfleet virtue. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, as we get deeper into the 21st century and, and we're kind of examining some of these things and pulling them apart and deconstructing them and viewing them through different lenses than we did in, you know, through the sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, up through to today. Uh, I think there's a lot to talk about there and a lot to examine, and uh, there's some things that we can very happily take from the Kirk toolkit and put on our own toolkits and some things that maybe we just leave on the side a little bit. And there's yeah. one scene with Paul Wesley's Kirk that I think embodies this perfectly where I think it's the episode with Uhura and the, the nebula that's full of deuterium that uh, kind of has life forms in it that are calling out to her kind of thing or it was subspace rhapsody one of the two where uhura starts saying something and paul wesley's kirk interrupts her and finishes her thought yeah and uhura looks at him and he goes sorry i shouldn't have interrupted you because you had that thought first he was doing a thing that kirk did a lot in the original series but adding just a little bit to it from a more modern sensibility to kind of call out that behavior just a little bit. I don't know. Every word on the script is intentional, of course, but that, that did jump out at me. And I was like, I like what they did there because he's Kirk, but he's a 21st century Kirk. And I think that's a good thing. You're absolutely right. These characters aren't set in stone. They can be reinvented. They can be reimagined. They can be applied differently while still maintaining a specific essence that will carry through each iteration as they move forward. One last little piece that I'll always remember is when Chris Pine very, very, to me, openly did his little homage to Shatner when he's getting hypo sprayed over and over again by McCoy in 2009 Trek. And he kind of leans up against him and looks at him and he goes, you call this a favor? Um, I, I always was very much like, see, these are the aspects of, of Kirk that are timeless, right? The little humorous moments, all those bits. But yeah, I remember you, I remember you and I, I think we talked about that instance between him and Ohura specifically, because yeah, it is a reinvention. And isn't that wonderful that we can reinvent some, some tropey characters and still find them uh, a place in our modern pop culture. And, and I think we don't need to be threatened by that. I think some people might feel threatened by that. I, I think there's, there's no reason to be. <laughs> change is okay. And, mm -hmm. and you're going to change and I'm going to change and we're all going to change and everybody changes. So, so can Captain Kirk. It's okay. Absolutely. So I think with that, we can maybe throw it to our listeners. Who would you like us to talk about next? We've got about a week and a half before, before we would record the next episode, give or take. That gives us enough time to watch a bit of Star Trek, maybe even together. Who knows? Get some pieces in, in place here. This has been a lot of fun getting to deep dive a specific character, not specifically their portrayal in every single thing. You know, we're painting with very broad strokes here. But uh, who else would you like us to talk about? Hop on our Facebook page at the uh, Positively Trek discussion group there and uh, let us know what you think. I, I nominate Morn. Well, that would need like seven or eight. Like it's a yeah, it's an eight part episode for sure. <laughs> and and knowing Morn, he would wind up contacting us and talking at us for like three and a half hours. Oh, you're right. About what exactly he wants brought up and what he wants. I can't. Yeah. He's, 
he's too complex of a character. Let's scrap that idea. Oof. Yeah. yeah. Not again. Oof-da, oof-da, oof-da. No, <laughs> no. Holy cow. Remember the last time? Anyways. So yes, with that, uh, send us, uh, send us your thoughts on, on James T. Kirk and, uh, send us your thoughts on who you think should be next in this list of characters. I mean, really, we have a lot of people we can talk about. So, uh, let's get on it. So with that, we hope you all enjoyed this episode and uh, always stay positive. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.